Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayodza, and with me always, Mike Grandinetti. And so happy to be here today. Uh, a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Today's episode is all about EdTech and how this space is evolving at an incredible pace. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have an expert on the topic, Patrick Mullane from uh, HBS Online. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So EdTech has been evolving steadily. Uh, I think the onset of most of this started in uh, 2008, roughly, somewhere along the lines. Uh, and uh, it's really now part of a large institution's portfolio. I don't think there is a large institution out there that doesn't have a presence in this space. So Mike and Patrick, let's jump in and talk about EdTech and talk about uh, what we see as as you know, as this evolving landscape that seems to just be accelerating uh, at a rapid pace. Uh, so, Mike, can you set up the conversation for us and uh, let's get into it? Absolutely. So, it's a very interesting point of discussion. It's ed tech, but it's also something I think that transcends any kind of category, right? And one of the things we yep. see in the world of disruptive innovation is large, successful companies tend to have an attitude, don't fix it if it ain't broken, Okay. Other than, you know, and the real mantra should be change before you have to. <laughs> there are very few organizations on this planet that have been more successful or more prestigious than Harvard Business School. And you Absolutely. could imagine how easy it would be for them to just allow the world to continue as is and, you know, allow all this other stuff happening around them to continue and just to continue to manage their franchise. Mm -hmm. What I love about the discussion we're about to have with Patrick is that Harvard, in fact, did something, I think, very courageous. They, they saw all of this innovation around them happening. And Patrick and his team understood that they had to take action. Now, you can imagine that's not an easy thing to do at Harvard. You've got exec ed, you've got Harvard Business School Publishing, and yet they decided they would create an online presence. So as a professor who teaches disruptive innovation, I was on the Harvard Business School publishing site looking for interesting cases when I stumbled on the HBX case. Excellent. And that's where I got to learn about Patrick. And I've taught the case. Patrick has been kind enough to join me in my classroom virtually. And I thought this would be a perfect opportunity now that we're back in Boston to have a chance to chat with Patrick about it live and expand it to a much broader audience. So Patrick, what a pleasure to have a chance to you know talk to you today in the studio and welcome as well. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Thank you. So Patrick, a little bit on your background, if you would, for our listeners, please. Sure. I was uh, a bit of a nomad as a child, a military brat, grew up all over the United States and the world, um, and went to undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, where I was back for a football game recently, having quite a bit of fun. <laughs> um, and uh, after that, I entered the military myself uh, and was in the private sector for a short while after that, then went to Harvard Business School myself, where I got my MBA. Uh, and I graduated at the height of the last kind of cataclysmic technology spasm at the, the dot-com, which turned out to be the bubble, yeah. um, but was in a startup uh, right out of school and then did several other things. Uh, last thing I did before I came back to Harvard Business School was run a manufacturing company, something very different than I'm doing now. But to Harvard Business School's credit, given that it's a business school, I think they realized general management is general management. And I had a lot of experience as a general manager, so I was hired to be the general manager effectively uh, my title is Executive Director of Harvard Business School Online, which used to be called HBX, and here we are. That's great. Excellent. And before we jump into the the HBX, HBS Online discussion, uh, your dad had a pretty interesting job as jobs <laughs> go. So would you, and, and again, there's something quite innovative about uh, the world your dad lived in. So just maybe for a minute or two, just talk about what it was like to be the son of an astronaut. Yeah, sure. My, uh, my father, I mentioned I was a military brat. He was selected in the first group of space shuttle astronauts and flew 
on the 12th space shuttle mission, the 27th and 36th. Wow. Uh, so it was, uh, it was interesting. It was fun. It was a very uh, weird lifestyle that I think looks weirder in retrospect than it did at the time. You know, you're a kid. I was a teenager in college for the last few of his missions. Um, but it was, it was fraught with kind of a lot of excitement, a lot of tragedy. I mean, I had uh, four of my classmates in my high school lost a parent when Challenger exploded. So it was a very, wow. very... Uh, unique inside view of a really interesting history in U.S. space exploration and, in, uh, as you say, disruption, because the space yeah. shuttle was certainly a disruptive vehicle. Absolutely. And living with the anxiety during liftoff and, and knowing what's at stake. Yeah, my mother, yeah. Uh, I think my mother basically told my dad if he does it again, yeah. <laughs> she might be out the door. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. What a fascinating uh, you know thing to experience firsthand. That and, was and awesome. Especially with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing uh, just in the, the rearview mirror yep. just yeah. a, a couple yep. of months ago. So, so what is it that leads a gentleman like you, who's been a general manager, who's been a, you know, a startup guy to come back to HBX to run what, let's be honest, was a pretty risky business proposition from the start. What drew you back to the institution? I really, uh, loved my time there. I, I knew nothing about Harvard Business School when I applied. Um, I always thought anybody that went to Harvard Business School was named Biff or Tad or Portia <laughs> and, you know, summered in the Hamptons. And that was not me. I was a military brat. Um, and I applied on a whim because a buddy of mine in the military applied and got in. It was one of those things where I thought, well, well gosh, if he got in, certainly I can get in. And sure enough, there I was. And um, the, the experience was so wonderful for me um, that I, I always had this thing in the back of my brain about going back and contributing in some way to whatever the next phase of Harvard Business School would be. And it it just happened to sync up. I mean, it really almost does seem preordained that uh, when I was looking for that opportunity, this opportunity to run the online division effectively of the business school came up and uh, I jumped at it. So Patrick, can you just frame for us what, what you know, when was that? What, what, what year are we talking about? Sure. That I joined four years ago. Okay. Uh, it had already gotten its start a year before that. Um, so there was some work done before I had gotten there. But it was a relatively small organization. We only had two courses, one being Clay Christensen's Disruptive Innovation course, and then something we call the Credential of Readiness, which helps people prepare for business or uh, get preparation in business fundamentals. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it wasn't, I wasn't a founder per se, but it was like coming into a very small startup uh, with a large venture capital firm behind it in the form of Harvard Business School right. and right. Uh, and jumping in and seeing how we could grow it. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing, right? Because I remember being the very first group of non-HBS professors to be invited into Harvard for a workshop on how to teach cases online, mm -hmm. right? Because the Harvard Business School publishing mm -hmm. empire is incredibly profitable, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's got probably 90 plus percent market share of all cases sold. So the ability for Harvard to transition to an online world, right? The the leader in that was HBS Publishing and getting professors like me to learn how to you know right. animate a case, which is very different when you do it online. Yeah. When did the whole MOOC threat first appear in the horizon where you know HBS recognized that maybe something had to be done to begin to respond? Great question. And I, it, it, it's a really interesting story because if you back up to when our current dean, Nathan Noria, took over as dean of Harvard Business School, shortly after he became dean, and he would have become dean about 10 years ago, 
Uh, he was asked in a public forum about what when Harvard Business School would do something uh, online, and his response, and this is a direct quote, was "Not in my lifetime." <laughs> I love it. So love it. He he clearly had a uh, a position, and it was unambiguous. <laughs> yes, it was quite unambiguous. I remember just like uh, our good friend um, that ran Digital Equipment Corporation, and you know the PC will never have any relevance. Right. Right. Uh, fascinating. Yeah. Now, to his credit, yeah. I think he realized, and he said this recently in a conversation I was in with him, that uh, he you know he realized that was probably not a prudent uh, call because shortly after that, um, I guess it was around 2012 when edX and Coursera and others, and, and before that, Sebastian Thrun at Stanford had yep. done some interesting stuff online. So, um, and by the way, edX is, is basically a joint venture between Harvard and MIT. So yeah. now it looks yeah. really silly. <laughs> you, you said this and you're not, you're not involved. Um, so he changed his mind, but he, he did put a caveat around us. One, one thing we were kind of blessed with at Harvard business school is we had a very defined pedagogy in the form of cases. And so, it, he said, if we're going to do it, we're going to stick to our knitting, which is case teaching, a really you know immersive way to learn. And, and that's what we did with Harvard Business School Online, formerly right. HBX at the time it was HBX. Okay. So, you know, there's no question that culture is the absolute fundamentally important thing to get right when it comes to innovation. And a lot of great strategies die on the vine if, if mm -hmm. it's not done in the right culture. And of course, there's a lot of very powerful people at Harvard. Can you talk a little bit about some of the internal challenges to, you know, bring this into the market without being undermined or sabotaged? Because I've seen this often happen mm. where, you know, there's just the cannibalization of the kind of, you know, profits that, that Harvard's generating in other businesses. Mm. It's got to be a very scary proposition for a lot of people. Yeah. And there certainly were pockets of that, to be sure. Um let me go at the question kind of from another angle, which is sure. one thing I think that was very smartly done, and again, we're kind of drinking our own mess in this regard, is I think there certainly was a realization that if you put this program inside of executive education or inside of the MBA program or inside of publishing, which are essentially the large three business lines in the business school, mm -hmm. that it would die on the vine because of the cultures, the systems, the the uh the incentive structures, everything would probably make it very hard for it to survive. So we were basically set up as an independent. We were, we were slightly off campus across the road in an old converted warehouse building, very startup-y. And, um, and there was this uh, belief, I think, that a, that was the only way you're going to make it work, and we joke now that it also made it possible to kind of disavow it if it didn't if it didn't go so well. Uh, fortunately, it has. Um, so it it was set up separately to get away from those things that you mentioned, Mike. And there's no doubt those are very real, and there there still are to some extent. There is. Um, a lot of, as you can imagine, um, questions about, okay, where does the product fit? This is a non-degree thing. So it's sort of like exec ed, um, but we're not teaching, uh, typically our customers or students or, or, are not as senior as they are in exec ed. So, you know, but, but they're there and, and we're meeting a demand. It's very mission driven. We're reaching more people. Uh, and if you're a mission driven or organization, that's what you believe in. So it's, uh, it's been going okay now. And I think that a lot of that initial worry has gone away. And last comment on this, I will say is that. I often point out to people too that as an MBA student at Harvard Business School, I was taught that even if you are cannibalizing, you should do it because if you don't do it, somebody else will. So uh, you might as well eat your own lunch if it's right. going to happen. Absolutely. And there's no evidence that's happening though, by the way. Right. Yeah. And 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 I'd love to you know dig into that. So mm -hmm. I, I guess let me step back and say you had some fundamental assumptions, right, which led you to create an MVP. What were those assumptions? in the MVP just to validate or invalidate mm -hmm. that you guys had something, you know, meaningful and complementary 
to yeah. this remarkably effective Harvard, you know, set of products and services. And so, so Patrick, yes. when you answer that, just for our listeners, um, mm-hmm. we you know we we talked about MOOCs. Uh, it's yeah. it's almost our own inside baseball. Yeah. Yeah. So, define for us the MOOC, and then also talk about what the MVP is, just so yeah. everybody who's listening knows sure. what those two things are. MOOC being massive open online course or massive online open course. I can never remember which O comes first. <laughs> right. Um, and that refers uh, to really edX and Coursera are probably yep. the ones that most people think about, as you all know, and and um, tend tended to start off as a free model, which we never did. Um, and uh, MVP, minimally viable product, I mm-hmm. assume that's uh, what you're referring to, is you know what did we start with to kind of prove the concept? Um, we started with what we call the credential of readiness. And it's interesting, it's not it's not that minimal. It's a, it's a pretty lengthy program, but there was a sense that it was a good bet to place because, and I think this is an important strategic decision that was a really good one, is rather than just kind of make a course and throw it out there, uh, there was a lot of thought put into what can we do with this course ourselves given what we already do. So one thing we did is for people, and by the way, I was included in this when I was accepting the MBA program. Since I was in the military, I did not have a lot of business experience. Mm-hmm. I had to go through effectively a boot camp, show up on campus early, learn the basics of accounting and finance and so forth. So um, so the thought was, let's not bring people to campus. That's an incredibly inefficient way to do this. Mm-hmm. Let's build a product that can take the place of that program. And that's what we did. And that's what Core does. So nobody comes to campus anymore. Uh, beforehand, students who need to be to brush up on these topics or need to learn them in the first place take parts or all of core and show up on campus ready to go. So that was, I think, a very very important decision, and it it, it also provided you, frankly, I think, and again, I wasn't there at the time this was released, but I think there's some political cover, right? Too. Yeah, it's a lot easier to make something that's going to augment the mothership, which is the MBA program, and that's what we did. Absolutely. So great alignment, right? Yeah. So that's brilliant, right? And I wasn't aware. So that's that's a brilliant strategy. Mm-hmm. So now you've got people that are pulling for you, right? Exactly. Interest exactly. Great. And Clay Christensen's course on disruptive strategy came out around the same time. Yeah. And that had a good fit because we had a willing faculty member who loves to do disruptive things. Uh, the topic fit with the medium in a lot of ways. So that's how we end up with disruptive strategy. All right. So, Nikisa, we may want to take a break now and then we'll come back and talk about what's happened since we've launched what was known as HBX. Sure. Fantastic. So, um, let's take a break. We'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by. Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the leading disruptive innovation program, visit li.rutgers.edu. Welcome back. So great conversation so far. Uh, so Patrick, one of the things that um, we we finished off in the in the before the break was just talking about uh, you know the course itself. Give us a sense of uh, not only the audience but the number of people that typically sign up. Uh, since this is you know a, a paid for model, uh, mm-hmm. give us a sense of the, the the personalities and the people that are coming to sign up for it. Sure. So just to give a sense of the product portfolio yep. first. We have eleven. 12 courses right now that are fully asynchronous, meaning the faculty have no live interaction mm-hmm. with students once they teach the course, which is an important point because faculty are in short supply, yeah. so you, that makes it scalable. Um, they range in price from around $1,000 to around $2,200, mm-hmm. um, depending on the program. Uh, to date, we've had around, in the last five years, around 60,000 people complete one of our 
uh, courses. Oh, wow. That's great. So uh, it's not the millions, yeah. um, but it's still, I'll put it in this context, the 60,000 people roughly equals the number of living MBA graduates. Um, so you figure mm. in five years, you've kind of matched that that wow. number. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, and, and the, the demographic is typically, uh, it's, it's, it's got a long tail on age. So, uh, you know, undergrads who are at liberal arts colleges often will take core, for example, because they want to go into consulting mm-hmm. or some business practice. And they need it as a way to kind of get a leg up in interviews. Then there's a set of people who will take something like core as a way to get ready for an MBA program or to test the waters to see if they want to be in an MBA program. And then a number of our other programs are kind of the mid-level, um, early career to mid-level managers. Uh, but as I said, if you did a histogram of the ages, it runs from you know 20 years old all the way out to I think our oldest participant has been 85 or so wow. who, who took it because his granddaughter uh, or his great-granddaughter I think had taken the course so um uh so the, the that's one thing nice about what we have is you can reach an audience that is much different than either that senior executive education higher price point on campus experience the MBA program for people who are roughly what you know 24 to 28 years old uh, so it, it's really a great way to extend the school's reach. And are you finding that the people that are doing these courses, I, I'm, I'm imagining this is a six to eight week type thing, um, yes. you know, in length, something like yeah. that? Core um, is is about 170 hours of seat time. So that one can be stretched out over even, I think our longest one is around 18 weeks. And all they, do they begin at a defined uh, time? Yes, or thank is you. It, that's you know, a, that's so. a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, our courses are not on demand. Mm. You are... Um, you have to choose to so be in a part cohort, of a cohort, okay. yeah, which is part we, we believe is important yeah. for a case method learning because yeah. you need to interact with others uh, in your program. So yes, I'm glad you brought that Excellent. up. Yeah, and on that point, so do you, but you do provide opportunities for these students to get back together on campus mm-hmm. once a year, so they feel like they're part of a larger community and part of the larger Harvard Business School network. Yes, in fact, <laughs> it's becoming a bit of a problem because it was easier to do when you had a smaller population of people who completed the program. Um, but now, as I mentioned before, when you've had, you know, over 50,000 people, if you even get a small percentage of those people who want to come back to campus, <laughs> it's a big group. Uh, and we don't have room for everybody who wants to come. So thank God for Airbnb. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the other problem. Hotels. Uh, yeah. So we, we accommodate about 500 a year. Um, last year we had somewhere between 200 and 300 people on a waiting list and this is to pay on their own dime right. to come back for the programming. And one thing I think it's really important is if you walk into a reception we have in the evening after that, and you see the people in there, I, if you took a snapshot of that, I can't tell you if it was a, my 20 year graduation class from Harvard business school or the online students. They really, I think we underestimate the connection that people feel they have. Now, I'm, I, it's not as deep. They don't know each other's children and all that. Um, but I think it's deeper than most people would expect. That's great. And, and so I've got to believe a part of that may be the unique platform mm-hmm. that you created. So there's a lot of third parties that would be happy to license you their technology to create a, you know, an online learning uh, course, right? Mm-hmm. That's not the direction you took. You guys, obviously, even though this was somewhat of an experiment, you did not hold back. You built a world-class platform from the start. So talk about that decision and what what you were hoping to get out of this significant investment and what it's what it's yielded for you. Sure. So the, the logic train basically was, okay, as I mentioned before, we want to make sure that our program is going to be case-based because that's what we believe in. That's what we know how to do. That's what we're known for. Once you decided that was going to be your pedagogy, um, and by the way, pedagogy is like learning or teaching method. I, I, mm-hmm. That's a word, frankly, I didn't even really hear until I got into <laughs> higher ed. And a lot of when, people, I don't think, know it. Once you get into higher ed, everybody talks yeah, about it. Yeah, everybody talks yes. about it, yes. Yeah. So um, 
since that was our pedagogy, it necessarily led to a chain of decisions. You needed interaction between students because in a, in a case method, you learn from the people in the classroom with you, as mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was even more important because the faculty weren't going to be there. So you had to have that as a way for people uh, to learn. Yeah. It required a cohort. It required protagonists you know, being filmed around the world. So all of those things, it, it necessitated the need to have a cold call because that's how you start a class a lot of times on, uh, in the classroom. Um, and so uh, at the time, there was a, a brief search to see if there was some technology that could be used to meet those needs. You know, Obviously, edX was around and Harvard was invested in it. But at the time, it just didn't have the capabilities that we thought we needed. So we decided to build our own platform, uh, which was a risky move because that is not cheap. Um, our organization now is almost 100 people, uh, full-time employees, and then we have another 50 or so contracted employees offshore okay. uh, for support and so forth. And about half of those people are doing technology stuff. And right. as you grow, when you get technical debt, you have to keep managing that. But I think it was the right move because it really it, it, it sets you apart. You're not uh, one huge advantage of it is that you have the risk if you're using an off the shelf platform that everybody else is using that you get genericized. And so it really gave you the opportunity to make sure you were uh, differentiated pretty significantly. That's great. And now as you think about where you started and where you are now, what what were some of the fundamental assumptions that were just plain wrong about <laughs> building this business? Um, I'll tell you the biggest one, and it's one that a lot of universities, I think, struggle with, is, uh, you know, I'm, it sounds like a home teamer here, but I don't think anybody would debate the point. Harvard is the strongest educational brand in the world. In fact, it, it probably is one of the strongest brands, period. You put it up there with, you know, Coca-Cola, um, and I don't know, name another one. Yeah. Um, and there was, I believe, a sense that if you build it, they will come. That is not true. In a crowded market um, with a lot of educational offerings, if you're going to reach the people you need to reach to extend your mission, you need to let them know what you've got, and that means marketing. And um, I, that was that we did not really have much of a marketing function when I got there. Um, it became really obvious to me uh, pretty quickly that we need we had to, and we built a pretty robust marketing team internally that does amazing work. I think they're probably the best in the education space. Uh, now we have a good brand to work with. I'm not going to deny sure. that that helps. Yeah. But uh, but if Harvard can't just build it and throw it out there, I don't think anybody can. And I think a lot of institutions are very uncomfortable with marketing, and that makes them falter sometimes when it comes to launching these sorts of programs. It's also why getting to something you all were alluding to earlier, mm -hmm. it's also why people have dove, dove in with third-party providers because one of the pitches they give is, we'll do the marketing for you, right? right. It's, it's kind of playing on that uncertainty and that apprehension about that function. That's great. And yeah. what are the marketing elements that are working for you? What are what are the key campaigns or programs or initiatives that seem to have been able to get people to know mm -hmm. about what your mission is and actually register for your courses? Yeah, it's all digital marketing. There's nothing, there's no secret sauce in the in the medium, I think. You know, it's banner ads and um, and uh, content marketing, you know, showing pieces, videos and things that give people a sense of what the courses are about. Um, but we've gotten really good, I think, at experimenting quickly, finding out, you know, what works and what doesn't. And let me, uh, I want to make one point too, because this is an area where a lot of people listening may say, well, what's a university doing marketing, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, as a business school, and I think this is the right attitude, we believe very fundamentally that you need to make money because you have to at least cover your expenses because anything is not covering expenses, nonprofits have to cover their expenses, you're going to go out of business, right? So um, I say, when I talk about marketing, I'm talking about getting learners into our programs that extend the reach of the school. I believe firmly in, in capitalism done well is a good thing for the world. 
And if you believe that, why wouldn't you want to get more people to sure. learn how to do it well? Yeah. Uh, and when I say well, I mean not just functionally, but ethically, morally, and so forth. So um, so anyway, I, I think that marketing is probably the one that people underestimate. Yeah, and I and might call it too. communications or even market education, right? I, I think, you know, yep. again, missions have to convey their purpose to the world. Yep. Organizations have to convey their purpose to the world, yep. regardless. Churches do. Yeah, there's right. not a mission, as yeah. I always say. I've never had anybody able to explain to me a mission-driven organization that wants to reach fewer people than more people, right? Obviously, you want to reach more people. So yeah, that's the goal. Exactly. So, you know, just to tease on something that you talked about earlier, you're talking about platforms, you're talking about third parties. So, I mean, I, I was blown away uh, when 2U, mm-hmm. which is, you know, they consider themselves an ed tech company. I think it was 2017. You know, they go out and buy Get Smarter, which was started, uh, GetSmarter.com was started by two South Africans. Mm-hmm. And they sold this thing, and uh, you know, to uh, you invested 103 million dollars, I think it was, and that was a cash, you know, a cash purchase. So there's obviously something that's going on where even organizations like that, probably to get, catch up with the, the branding that you already mm-hmm. take advantage of as Harvard. Um, but I'm curious what your thought is about you know the marketplace itself and just how big that space is and what these platforms really represent. Mm-hmm. I mean, who are the big players? Because uh, obviously we've we've talked about Coursera. You know, two U is obviously investing a lot, so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Sure. The um, so you mentioned probably the the two U gets a lot of publicity because it's a publicly traded company, mm-hmm. which always gets you, I think, a profile a little higher. Um, Coursera started moving to be, behaving like an OPM, which is an online program manager, yep. which is what two U is. Um, and then you mentioned Get Smarter, yep. uh, which does a lower price point, mm-hmm. um, mostly asynchronous uh, uh, programs. Um, I think the market. Is, is enormous. I mean, that's why people are throwing a lot of money into it. I think there's still a lot of runway there. There's a lot of people who haven't figured out what they need to what they need to do. I think there's going to be a lot more. Um, there's going to be a lot more options beyond uh, a you know two U model, um, which is a typically a revenue share model. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a share of the revenue versus a fee for service model where you can hire and we do that. We hire yep. um, you know an outside firm to help us do project A. Um, I think there's room for both, and it really depends on the institution um, if you're going to try and f- decide whether you do the make versus buy, because ultimately that's what that decision is, right? Is are we going to make it internally, or are we going to buy it by either going to a fee for service person or a rev share uh, entity? Yeah, and I'm also just curious in terms of so your product is obviously you know from the standpoint of uh, premier products, it, it's up there, right? Mm-hmm. My, 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 I'm curious about you know what your perception is for everybody that's taken this course. You've talked about 50,000 people. How does that play out, um, particularly for people who are young professionals or professionals who are um, trying to advance their learning? Mm-hmm. How do you think that plays out in terms of the credentials themselves? Because you know even to get smarter, for example, they'll pair with a, a Harvard X mm-hmm. or an MIT yeah. or you know. So I'm just curious your thoughts on where you think the actual credentials themselves uh, uh, and the learning behind it fits into. Uh, the way that I think uh, work is evolving, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, we, we're all seeing a, a fundamental shift in how people work and where they learn from. So just curious about mm-hmm. your thoughts on, from that perspective. Well, not to play on your get smarter thing, that's a $100 million question. I think you're, <laughs> I think uh, it's a great question and one I'm not sure I have a satisfying answer about. I, um, I think there's a lot of shaking out that has to happen in the market to mm-hmm. determine um, what the ultimate value of non-degree stuff is. Now, I actually think that uh, non-degree stuff um, it gets a bad rap because, you know, frankly, we we haven't really stressed our uh, traditional institutions 
uh, to prove to us that they've delivered value. And there's a, Good point. There's a lot of evidence they don't. Uh, right. And not only that, they don't while incurring, uh, forcing people to incur huge debt. Right. Uh, so, um, so I think you're going to see a, a, a move toward that happening both at the larger institution level and at the credential and the certificate level. Um, I, I believe brand will matter more probably in the certificate and credential uh, market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a place where we certainly have an advantage. Um, but if somebody is able to find, if an institution is able to find a niche that really fits with who they are, and that niche could be, by the way, hey, we're really connected to industry in our community. And you know, we're in a town that has a huge... A company that needs a lot of data scientists. Well, we're going to have a data science uh, program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's I think how we're going to. But see but it just all. one last point, yeah, and, sure. then and then I'll and then I'll. So I, what I'm what I'm curious about as well is just if you think about um, the number of people that are taking these courses. We mm-hmm. mentioned fifty thousand in your case, and obviously there are other programs out there. I I wonder uh, how far uh, the the well, maybe let's rephrase. The, let me rephrase my question. I think really. Um, it's not as if the work that people are doing when they mm-hmm. sign up for a course is any less rigorous than the in-person experience, right, mm-hmm. that of a traditional program. So talk to us about a little bit about that, because to your point, I think the bad rap comes from people not understanding that there's equally as much rigor to, mm-hmm. to complete those courses in the finite time that you have. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I'd be curious your, your thoughts on that. Sure. I mean, the if I let me just focus on Harvard, because I know it well in Harvard Business School. Um, the, the, some of the differences are even though there's rigor and even though like core is 170 hours, that's mm-hmm. still significantly less than you're going to experience in an MBA program. Sure. Number one, sure. Number two is uh, the Dean has said this and I tend to agree uh, with today's current, with, with today's technology, there is still nothing that approaches a two year immersive in-person experience where you're connecting with people that are going to build a network for you. And you know, I always joke. Yeah. I, when I went to Harvard Business School, that's what I paid for is the network. The network, of, yes. You know, people yeah, yeah. That, that are there. So, um, so I think that um, that there there is a place. You know, they're, they're serving a different need, not just our programs, but other non degree programs. And uh, there's a place for the four year degree. I don't believe in the demise of the four year degree, as a lot of uh, people will say. And by the way, I, here's another thing that I think uh, I don't hear a lot of people talk about that I think is really going to change, is every single major online education offering has come to be after the great recession. Hmm. It's really easy for a Google or Yahoo or Facebook, whoever to say, we don't care if you have a degree when the labor market is incredibly tight and you just got to have warm bodies. I don't think that continues when the labor market gets more expansive because we have a recession and we will have one. The reason I say that is because if you've got two people, all things being equal and they Mm -hmm. never are, They'll take the same amount of money, and one has a computer science degree from Stanford, and one took a Python boot camp. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? At least you know you probably think there's more upside with the first person. Yeah. So, so I think uh, there's still a lot to to happen before we reach an equi- equilibrium point. We're kind of frothy days yeah. right now. And I'd like to just as a guy that's been a professor for twenty plus years and also studies innovation, I've mm-hmm. got to concur. I think you know when you're in the classroom environment with your students there's there's a, a completely different level of engagement and a lot of these students are seeking out you know additional books to read additional mm-hmm. programs to participate in looking for mentorship um, now and i will also share this right i was recruited fairly aggressively by a a purely online mba program not mm-hmm. to be mentioned and they had a pretty significant onboarding program and I was very disappointed to see that it really was nothing more than a diploma mill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the key pieces of feedback was, you know, don't be too tough with these students. These were all executives. 
you know, we want to encourage them. So, you know, even if they're not really doing, uh, they're not engaged, they're not really working very hard, they're not really performing very well, you know, let's keep that between us. Hmm. Just give them a lot of attaboys. And I said, I, I just can't do it. So I do think, you know, there's a, I think exactly as Patrick, you know, brand will matter and brand I think is going to be completely correlated to mm -hmm. the quality of education, right? So if I'm an employer hiring people from this institution and I know that, when the economy bottoms out and there are signals, it will soon. Um, that's not the first institution I'm going to go to to say I want someone from that program. Right. Yeah. No, and it's an interesting topic uh, because, you know, so I did take, I actually did take a Get Smarter course, uh, a blockchain course, uh, in part because, again, universities don't really have blockchain yep. courses, right? <laughs> Emerging technology. Um, and and it, the experience was pretty rigorous yep. uh, in terms of the content and the amount. And I felt the platform itself, this one happened to be MIT's. Um, I, I missed the Harvard one, so I had to, I had to find one. Um, That's okay. <laughs> I've heard of MIT. They're okay. Next yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. That, the other school. It's yeah. a good local community college. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, but you know, it, it's fascinating. One of the things I found truly interesting was the range and uh, not just the range of demographic, but also the range in terms of experience of the people that were that were coming in and the global nature of it. Mm. And what I experienced was thinking about what it meant to really be um, engaging in what felt like a global village learning scenario, which to me really matches where I think a lot of things are going. You know, pe people will travel, right, from all over the world to come and study at Harvard. And you're absolutely right. The two-year experience, it's immersive, mm -hmm. it's incredible. That can't be replaced. However, there's something to be said about the, uh, where is the next extension of learning going to happen when, you know, you've got a billion people on one side of, you know, five billion people on one side of the globe who really do want to get access to that education. And it might not be the same immersive experience, but I think it's this notion of the democratization of, you know, education, right, which is where this whole thing started in terms of the MOOCs. And I think um, there's something incredibly valuable about knowing that the information um, uh, is really, again, available uh, and the degree to which you can engage obviously translates into what you pay, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, but um, th this notion of of having a conversation with people in Taiwan or Thailand or you know anywhere in in APAC as well as in 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 Africa is all over Southern Africa, Northern Africa is a really interesting mm -hmm. one. Um, so anyway, we, we we obviously could keep talking about this, and this is a, f a fantastic mm -hmm. topic. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Okay, this is the part where we talk about you. Yes, you. Midway through each show, we take a break from informing listeners about all the amazing things going on in the world of business and technology to personally deliver your message to our innovation-driven, industry-leading listeners. If you'd like to be a part of the show and become a sponsor of the segment, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at thisiscool at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.com or thisisdeep at disruptiveinnovation.info. <laughs> reach out to us and we'll get you on the show. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. So as, as always, we are getting to the end of the conversation. Fantastic discussion so far with Patrick. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where we realize we could keep going on and keep talking about uh, about the topic. But uh, Mike, I'll, I'll give it back to you. Yeah. And let's let's start winding down, Patrick. This has been a great discussion. I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this. And, you know, I want to maybe finish with a couple of questions for you. The first is, as you've mentioned, you've got 11 core offerings now. How do you see this program expanding over time based on where we are today? Well, we continue to build out two to three courses a year in various disciplines. Uh, we're moving you know, toward just having uh, 
a number of courses in similar disciplines with different spins on them. You know, you could see a, a number of leadership courses that address many different aspects of leadership, as an example. Um, we, we haven't talked at all about the fact that we also have a virtual classroom in WGBH uh, studios here, the public television station. Oh, fantastic. Um, that allow completely synchronous teaching uh, as if you're standing in a classroom uh, for 60 people on a, on a wall. Uh, we actually are building two brand new uh, virtual classrooms on campus, which is going to be really great okay. to make it easier to do those sorts of things. So I think uh, you will see the use of those virtual classrooms evolve over time. We've already run a lot of kind of corporate programs and open enrollment programs through those. Um, and that's a premium offering, I assume, because you're now taking much more time of your professor and they're on a schedule. So I imagine this is a true a, a, a different level of... Yeah, a typical, a typical program might run six to eight weeks with one session a week, uh, a 90-minute case discussion with a faculty member from Harvard Business School. And yeah, the price points on that do tend to be higher, say, between $3,000 and $6,000, depending on the program and the number of uh, sessions. But they've been very, very well received. And, and that technology we built ourselves, too, and it's really good. I mean, this, this isn't a Zoom session. This is like right. a live television program. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so we'll be building out more of those asynchronous courses, more synchronous uh, courses. Uh, we're staying in the realm of non-credit. We're not, we're not offering any credit for our programs from Harvard. There are other schools who use our programs to offer credit, but we don't do it ourselves. Um, and I, as I said before, I think there's huge opportunity and uh, we want to reach more and more people uh, to the extent we can uh, to, to meet our mission goals. That's great. And in the era of big data, how do you determine the next three courses that you will create? <laughs> it's not nearly as scientific as you think. Uh, we do have our preferences. I have a team of product managers uh, that think about what the market needs and what it would look like. But we have to have that product manager desire meet with faculty availability and and complementary desire, right? So it's kind of a combination of being kind of market-driven plus faculty-driven. Okay. And and I guess, you know, as we wrap up this episode, um, going back to the Harvard Business School case, which I love to teach and which you've helped me teach, mm -hmm. this is a fairly rare example of a prestigious global institution getting ahead of change, creating a very successful business. I, I'm, I'm just blown away by the fact that you said you've taught 50 to 60,000 students just in the five years you've been up and running, which is the entire cumulative history of MBA degreed, you know, living alumni, living alumni, yes. right? Remarkable, right? So you talk about, you know, using tech to scale. Mm -hmm. Can you leave our listeners with some insight, some advice on, you know, how do you navigate the challenges of change and the obstacles to change within a large institution? We touched on some of them. One is, I think, to pick that first product in a way that complements what you're already doing so you don't look like you've gone way off in the left field immediately because, as you said, you need, to, you need to bring people along with you, and it's easier to do that. Um, the other is, I think, uh, a huge benefit if you can, and you have to have the resources to do it, is to pull the, the function out of existing uh, entities, if you will, because otherwise they'll be kind of consumed, killed in the cradle, so to speak. Um, don't worry about cannibalization. We talked about that. I think that too many people get really hung up on that. If you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody else will. So you might as well, you know, claim that value, uh, for yourself. And, uh, and with respect to online education specifically is, um, that pedagogy matters and it matters more from the student perspective than the faculty perspective. So, uh, so much pedagogy in most universities for eons has been the lecture. 
And so every institution's bias is to put lectures online. Lectures are boring in person. They're really freaking boring online. So you got to find a way to make it interesting or you're going to make a crummy course. So uh, don't be flippant about that process. That's great. Okay. So Patrick, can't thank you enough. We're here in Boston and um, Patrick is going to do a very Boston thing tonight. (laughs) He's going to go see... Our beloved Red Sox play Our at Fenway. Red Sox. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, not not having the same year they did last yeah. year, but still, any night you can spend at Fenway is a good night. I agree. Well, Patrick, thank you for being here. That's all we have this week. So we appreciate you being in studio with us today, Thanks spending for some time me. with us. Uh, now it's my favorite part of uh, every episode, which is uh, three things. So, Mike, what you got for us this week? Yeah, and before we get to the three things, I I don't want to let this moment pass without acknowledging the extraordinary talent and the incredible musical contributions of Rick Ocasek and the band known as The Car. So it turns out that we are recording in the studio that was owned by Rick Ocasek and The Cars. For some of our younger listeners who may not know that name, (laughs) let me explain how influential they were. They were a Boston-based band. Okay, They actually tried to make it on the New York, in the New York folk scene, Mm -hmm. and Ocasek was way too edgy for that. So they came up to Boston, and in 1978, they released their very first album called The Cars. Mm-hmm. And three number one hits came off that album, including Candy O and My Best Friend's Girl. And they went on to sell six million copies. Great music. Over the next 12 years, they were one of the most influential bands in the United States, had a tremendous impact on a lot of different genres of music. Absolutely. Rick Ocasek was undisputed, undisputedly the leader, the songwriter, you know, the the symbol of the band. And sadly, Rick Ocasek passed a few nights ago. Uh, he was found unconscious in a hotel room in New York City. And I would just like to thank Rick for the wonderful music that he contributed, not just through his own band, but through many other bands that were influenced by the car. So, you know, we sit here in very sacred space. Fenway Park is sacred space. Absolutely. And this studio is sacred space. And it's an honor for us to record here Peace be with you, Rick Ocasek, wherever you are. R.I.P. Rick. Okay, Mike. So hit me with the three things. Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to tie back to the discussion that we had just now with Patrick. There's a lot of great educational institutions in Boston that are not named Harvard. <laughs> and in Boston, the greater Boston area, one of them is Babson. And it turns out this week, Babson College is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Wow. And the reason I think it's worthy of discussing is Babson legitimized the study of entrepreneurship in a very visionary way, right? It wasn't cool to be an entrepreneur until relatively recently. And yet, you know, I'll be part of some of the centennial celebrations. I just came over from the Babson, uh, the beginning of the celebrations uh, just just before the studio time here today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of different institutions that are doing incredible pioneering work to educate the world. And and I was sitting next to a young woman who'd flown all the way over from Turkey Hmm. to participate in these celebrations. And so, you know, my hat's off to Babson. Um, They've they've created a lot of incredible companies um, and the spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation runs very high. Fantastic. Okay. Fantastic. Now, the well, what's sec- number two? Number two is, uh, you know, very interestingly, we ended our last episode in our discussion with Liam Kaufman yep. from Winterlight Labs. Shout out to Liam. Uh, uh, shout out to Liam. <laughs> and I think the, the response to that podcast has been great. But I talked about how important it would be for our listeners to know about what Andrew Yang is promoting in his policies. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, we had talked about the fact that Yang was getting no love from the media. And even though he was polling five times harder, higher than Beto and others, there was nobody writing about him. Well, there's two things that happened since last week. Uh-oh. And he's now very much on the radar screen. <laughs> so the first thing is um, Saturday Night Live hired for four days. Right. He lasted just a couple of days shorter than Scaramucci. Yeah. <laughs> we all remember and, the mooch. And that's a tough, that's a <laughs> yeah. tough feat. That's a tough thing, right? That, that's a record. <laughs> so this gentleman named Shane Gillis was hired by Saturday Night Live. And unfortunately, social media does have an opportunity to, uh, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Unfortunately, Mr. Gillis uh, slammed Asians and he happened to slam Mr. Yang. Yeah. And the offer was rescinded uh, in four days. So he's no longer going to be with Saturday Night Live. Oops. And Andrew Yang was quite the gentleman. He said, listen, you know, I don't think they should have fired the guy. I'd be happy to sit down with him and talk about, you know, where he may be confused. Um, but today, of all days, the Wall Street Journal wrote a fairly significant article about Andrew Yang. And it's a real breakthrough for Andrew Yang. And a lot of it was based on his universal basic income uh, proposal mm-hmm. because he's the one candidate talking about the inevitable disruption we will feel in society from all of the many things we talk about on this podcast series from week to week with the advent of all these advanced technologies. Okay. I want to relate that to another article that appeared today. So here in Boston, we have a a, a national hero by the name of Desh, Guru Raj Deshpande. Mm -hmm. Now, Desh is known as- Wait, is this number three? Well, this is related to number two because it's very much tied. So Andrew Yang made his name by creating something called Venture for America. Mm -hmm. And Venture for America was about bringing- business creation opportunities and job creation opportunities to beleaguered inner cities. And, and this is how he has become so, you know, such, so understanding of what's happening in America at a grassroots level. Well, Desh Deshpande, who was twice successful as a telecom entrepreneur, mm-hmm. is a billionaire, but an incredibly selfless man, um, donated $25 million to MIT to create the Deshpande Center to facilitate the commercialization of tech coming out of the labs there. He's also done a lot of social impact work, and one of his programs is called Entrepreneurship for All. In many ways, it's very related to what Andrew Yang has been doing, but it's here centered in Massachusetts. So he has rolled out programs in Roxbury, in Fall River, in Linfield, oh, wow. in Pittsfield, and a lot of you know challenged inner cities. And they're creating a lot of accelerators and mentorship and a lot of the kinds of things that we take for granted at the Harvard iLab or the MIT Sloan Center or in Techstars or Y Combinator. Right. And so I think that there's a real connection between the kind of work that Andrew is doing and that Desh is doing here in the mass in the state of Massachusetts. Fantastic. Okay. All right. And, and number three. Number three. So our our beloved president uh, calls this woman the tax lady. Um, Margaret Vestager uh, was the competition chief in Europe. And she's become quite well known to the legal counsel of Google and Facebook and Amazon. And um, it was quite surprising that she was not only reappointed to a second term, she was actually given a promotion. Hmm. And so with the new president of the EU, she was asked to continue in her role. And she's also going to be very deeply involved now in policy and in the adjudication of that policy for the European digital economy. So for those people who are, you know, trying to keep uh, Facebook and Google safe from European regulation, 
you've got another four years ahead of you, so be on the lookout for Ms. Vestager. She's clearly a woman who has proven that she is not afraid to back down from any fight. And so this is an example, again, we're seeing a lot more of this legislative challenge in the United States, but she was the pioneer. And I think it just, it really speaks to a lot of challenges ahead for the big four. Excellent. Well, Mike, thank you very much. Uh, That's it, folks. We'll see you later. If you've enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.